Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Well, we are in Esther chapter 8. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to Esther chapter 8. And last week in Esther, we had a showdown between Esther, the king, and Haman. She finally brought before the king the threats that Haman had been making. The king was drinking again, as always. It was part of he does. Where is the king drinking? There he is. <laughs> For two days they had been parting as it is, and then Esther spilled the beans on Haman and the plot against him, trying to kill all the Jews. He was busted before them. So the king strolled out in the garden and it looked a lot like Maximus and the gladiator as he tried to clear his thought for what was happening. And then Haman was taken to the gallows and actually that he had prepared for Mordecai, he ended up being killed on. That's to get you caught up last week in Esther. This week, as we're going in chapter eight, we're going to start three chapters that are really uh, a lot of modern theologians and scholars have had a hard time with these Three chapters. There are some things that are in them that are very um, engaging and, and maybe makes us think, what's going on here? Is this okay? And, and I want you to know that as we have the scriptures, it is okay to question things. It's okay to not even like some of the things that you're reading. It's not that God has written this and says, you just got to believe it. And don't question anything, right? You may have heard the Bible says it, that settles it. I don't believe that that's God's intention. When God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him, I think God is wanting us to go, what? I think he's wanting us to feel uneasy about that. When Solomon says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. I think that's meant to cause a question within us and say, really? Everything is meaningless? It's meant to engage, not to just be taken point blank. We are supposed to question. We are supposed to ask questions. We are supposed to struggle and wrestle with the scriptures. It is part of the relationship that we have with God. It's even what Jesus did, where he would ask questions. Doesn't the scripture say that David called his descendant Lord? How can he, if he has a child, call him Lord? Right? He's asking a question of the scripture to try and get deeper to it. And so 
before we can reject something that we're reading, we have to at least try and understand it. And so in these next few chapters, we're going to be looking at some things that might be difficult to, you know, kind of embrace, but let's try and understand it and let's try and move into it and have this kind of a dialogue because God is wanting to speak through it. All scripture is inspired. It is God breathed and it's profitable for correction, for reproof so that we can be established but we can engage it. And and I want you to feel free to do these things as you read the scripture. You might read something and says, that sounds strange to me. And it's probably meant to sound strange. Or that seems like a contradiction. How can there be nothing new under the sun and God makes all things new? How do those things work together? And it's our job to engage them and find out what is the meaning behind these things and how do they fit together? Because then you'll find out how powerful the scriptures are in dealing with all the areas of life. And so I pray as we go into this section that we'll do this just that. This morning, we're going to talk about a new sheriff in town. We're going to talk about passion. We're going to talk about an island in Canada. We're going to talk about copying and pasting. Esther chapter 8, verse 1, it says, On that day, this is the same day that Haman was taken and killed, put on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. On that day, King Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her, that he was basically her uncle. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, when she's setting him over the house of Haman, this isn't just his home where he lived. This is over all that he possessed. This would include servants. This would include responsibilities. And what we're seeing here is there is a new sheriff in town, right? All of a sudden, Haman is out of the picture or, and Mordecai steps into this place. And now he is responsible for all the things that Haman was responsible for. And he's taking charge. Esther finally is able to say, this is my uncle. He's raised me my whole life. And I want you to see the relationship that we have. Remember last time too, that we know that the king was aware of Mordecai because he was written in the books. He had saved his life from the plot against him. And so this is coming up. And now perhaps he's put in charge of Haman's household because with that wealth and with his family could also be the retaliation, right? They've killed Haman, and so we're going to use our resources to try and continue what he was doing. Remember, he talked to his wife and to his counsel to try and continue this extinguishing of the Jewish people. And so authority is now given from the predator to the prey, The question now is, what is going to happen to the prey when they're given this authority? In verse 3, it says, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to 
avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, remember, she could cry, but she couldn't speak until he gave her permission. As he holds out the scepter, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the king seems right, if it seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are all, in all the provinces of the king. First thing we see is that Esther starts crying. She is moved because of what is happening. And what we're seeing here is that there is a passion that she has. It, it is something that is fueling her so that she cannot continue moving forward without getting this off her chest. You see, the job isn't done. Just because Haman is done with, the one who is plotting all this, the law is still in the books. The edict is still there. There is still going to be this genocide of all the Jews in the province of Persia unless it is put to an end. And so this moves her to start crying. And then we see these four ifs, right? I mean, it's like, if it please the king, if I found favor inside, if I'm your girlfriend, will you please do this for me, right? It's kind of this spilling out. That was supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be this spilling out of her heart to the king so that he'll put a stop to this. And it's Important that we recognize that passion is supposed to be an important part of our lives. Coming to faith does not stop us from being emotional and passionate people. We talked last week about how emotions are actually a biological thing as well as a psychological thing. That when we're afraid, we start to perspire. Our adrenaline starts to rush. We, we have our chemistry and our body starts to react based on the emotions that we're feeling. And the passion that she has is putting her again to a place where she is going before the king and actually pushing things. And, and I find that without passion, we don't step forward into the life that really God has for us. We want to live safe. We want to live comfortable. And we don't take that step. It's passion that pushes us there. This morning, I got a call from my daughter. And she called me. It was about 8.30. She usually gets off at 7.30. She's a nurse. And she works from 7 at night to 7.30 in the morning. And so 8.30, I got a call and I could tell her adrenaline was pumping, right? She goes, man, I had a crazy night. I had two people that I resuscitated and brought back to life today. One person had drunk a whole bottle of, of vodka in five minutes and he stopped breathing and we had to resuscitate him. And then I went out with all the nurses afterwards and we had breakfast and it's like, I'm part of the team now. You know, she's all excited because she's still on her probationary period and she's telling me all this thing and I can see this excitement. I can sense it from her. She just worked a 12-hour shift, just had breakfast with all the nurses and she's still pumped, right? Her adrenaline is still going and I'm so proud of her. I mean, she saved two people's lives today. What did you do today? And just, you know, like, well, I trained a dog this week. You know I mean? It's like... As she starts telling me, it's, it's, it's the passion of her life. Who would want to be in a place where someone's life is dependent on you? 
You see, you have to have passion to be there to actually be able to step into that. And that's true in so many areas of our lives, even artists. You know, if you're going to share in poetry and open your heart up to spill your guts in front of other people, you have to have passion that puts you vulnerable situations to be able to share that. And which is happening right here, because what we see in verse six is actually a poem. She says, for how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? You see, this passion moves her to expression. And the expression shows up in this area of poetry. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, it says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The only way I know of that helps me to not give up is to have passion. If I stop loving and caring about the things I'm doing, I grow very weary. And sometimes I do get tired. I get tired of the the mundane routine of the things that I have to do in my life. And I have to rekindle the passion that's there. And what happens is this expression has to form in a different way. And so she does it in poetry. Isn't it amazing how music and how poetry can move us in ways that just words don't? There's a place in Canada that's called A Thousand Islands. Years ago, I went on a business trip to one of the islands there in Canada. One of the manufacturer, who's a plywood manufacturer, he owned his own island because you can own islands. Is that like the coolest thing or what? You can own your own island. I, I don't know how many minutes I spent Googling the islands of Canada and seeing all the different homes on these different islands. Well, I got to go to one of those in a business trip. It was for a week. It was a fishing business trip. And we flew by a seaplane to the island. And as we're coming around the plane, the guy has a yacht that is one of those yachts that are not like the ordinary yachts, right? This is one of those yachts that has like, you know, yeah, it's just, it's got, you know, the sea dews and it's, it's just incredible. And you pull around and all of a sudden you go, wow, that's a yacht and that's from a plane. And we land there and we get to go and stay in the island where they serve us filet mignon wrapped in bacon and all kinds of things. And it's just like unbelievable. They have bald eagles circling like seagulls. In fact, the cook at the kitchen, because they have a chef there at the kitchen, he goes out and he takes this raw piece of chicken, and it's like a chicken breast, and he goes out to the balcony, and we're all just sitting there watching, and he just starts calling for these eagles, right? I was like, yeah, of course you do, you know? He calls for this eagle, and this eagle starts swooping up, and he throws this chicken breast up in the air. The bird catches it midair and then flies off to its nest that's right over there, Right? I mean, that's what's happening. The first day we get on these boats because they charter these fishermen to take you out fishing. That's the kind of business trip it was, all right? They take us out on a boat and we're there and I'm fishing and I catch this fish. And it was kind of cold that first day and I'm like, you know, cold. But all of a sudden you catch the fish and man, your adrenaline starts pumping. And I reel in this fish and it was 
like this big. It was called a coho, I think it was. And I was like, oh man, this is amazing. And I'm like looking at this fish and the guy looks at me and he goes, oh yeah, that's a coho, eh? Because he's from Canada. And he goes, oh, that's a beaut, that's a beaut, eh? And he takes it and then he takes it off the hook and he throws it back in the water. And he goes, it's too small. I go, too small? That's the biggest fish I've ever caught in my life. And you just threw it back. Now I couldn't say that, but I was just like, Why'd you go? Oh, we're not allowed to keep those. eh? It's got to be a certain length and all this. And those are off season right now. I was like, oh, okay. And sure enough, that was the smallest thing I caught that week. I know. (laughs) And I don't even like to fish, right? And then you're thinking, what are you doing on that trip? I should have been there. And the whole week was going out fishing. We're catching salmon. We're reeling them in. I mean, my arms are burning from having to do this. Then they actually take them. They clean them for us and they smoke them and they freeze dry them so we can take them home. It it was like unbelievable. And I'm there for almost a week on this island enjoying this business trip while my wife is at home, right? And so one of the days that they're there and we had kind of a calm day, a bunch of the guys got on the yacht and they went into one of the areas of town and they were all going to go to a strip club. And me and a few guys said, no, nah, we're not going to go there, right? And so we stayed there on the island, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm, cruise ships are going up right by the, the island on their way to Canada. At night, they look like, you know, Christmas going up there. And I'm just thinking, this is incredible. I've got, you know, bald eagles crying out here. It's just unbelievably gorgeous. And my wife isn't here. And I'm going to go back to her and explain to her what's going on. And how do I do that? How do I tell her about how wonderful this trip is without her hating me? She wouldn't, but you know, that's, and so what I did is in that day where everyone was gone, I wrote a song and I wrote a song for my wife, just explaining this trip and how I missed her on this trip. Right. And so I get back and uh, I get back home and I say, hey, I got something for you. I take my guitar out because I took this little guitar with me and I play this song for her, right? And it moves her and she starts crying and it's like, yes, it did its job. (laughs) It it, it worked. In fact, I pulled that song out of my back pocket. I can't tell you how many times, all right? She's she's mad at me. like, oh, is that the song you wrote for me? Yeah, it is, honey. You still mad at me? I wrote you a song, right? (laughs) The only way I could try to express to her what was going on and that I wish she was there was through a song because I couldn't just tell her. It was too much. There was too much beauty that was there to just express in some words and to try and connect her to how I felt that she wasn't there. I had to use poetry. I had to write this out so that it could have meaning. And here Esther is crying before the king and these words that are poetic come out I need to save my people, my kindred. And it's there to move him, and it's there to move us. It's there to push us into this place. It continues her passionate plea to the king. In verse 7, it says, Then King Xerxes said to the Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you, that you is plural and it's emphatic, may write as you please with regard to the Jews.
in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now, this is important because this is what happened when Haman made an edict. It was written down, the ring was used, and it could not be revoked. You see, they couldn't say, okay, erased what Haman did. It can't be revoked. So what has to be done is there has to be something else written that supersedes what was written. But the ball is already rolling. Things are already happening. And the king, instead of stepping into this, he says, you guys... I've done what I needed to do. I took care of Haman, his household. I give it to you. Here's my ring. You take care of this, meaning you, Mordecai, and Esther. You now do what is necessary to take care of things. I'm going to go back to the vineyard and have some more wine, right? That's kind of the king's role. That's what he's been doing this whole time. I'm going to give this to you. He keeps passing things on to other people, so he passes this on now to Mordecai and to Esther, You have to write something up that is going to take the place of what has already been written. Verse 9, it says, The king's scribes were summoned at that time, and the third month is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and of the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, giving you an expanse of how big this is, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. This is new from what was happening before, and that was probably Hebrew or Aramaic was being spoken at the time. And he wrote in all the name of King Xerxes and sealed it with the king's signet ring, and he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. Okay, so these are the fastest horses that they have at that time. These are the, you know, Ferraris of the day. Saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the province of King Xerxes, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all the peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Now, it's important to note that much of what is written here is really taken from what Mordecai had written. And so what happens is basically he copied and pasted, right? Because got to get this out new. Here's Here's what Haman wrote. Mordecai takes it and he puts it. Here's the new edict. And it's just written in a new dynamic so that this one is superseded by this one. So it's not all original. He's kind of cheating. At least that's what they called it when I was in high school, right? It's okay in the Bible. I should have used that, right? Anyway, what's happening here is 
there's an important element because we read something that talks about destroy, kill, annihilate any armed forces and any people in the province, including children and women, and plunder their goods. And we start thinking, has the prey become the predator? Have things reversed and now all of a sudden Mordecai is taking on a role where he is asserting himself in a way that is hostile, where he's taking vengeance. And this is significant that he's copying and pasting because he's using Haman's words. It's not that he's saying this is what we want to do. It's saying this is what was being done and it's trying to give the power that was going to be done to them actually to them. But it comes across very violent. And again, in the next chapter, we get to see how this violence comes out and we'll talk about it a little bit more. But one of the keys that is taking place here is that the word plunder is used and in Chapter 9, we say that they did not plunder, which means they weren't just doing this to get power, that it was kind of for protection. But sometimes the best thing we can do is repeat the verbiage that has been done. Sometimes the things that we share with people oftentimes are things that we've heard and we just want to express it again. I know I've when I've read like C.S. Lewis or I've heard Erwin McManus, a lot of times I take the things I've read and things I've heard and I put them into my vocabulary now because they're things that have been significant in my life and I want to use them to be significant to other people. And so Mordecai is taking what was significantly used by Haman and trying to take it and use it into this other plane. In verse 15, we see, Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Sudan and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city where the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. This is the only time we see this in Scripture, that people actually became Jews. And it's because they were afraid of the Jews. This edict is almost meant to legalize self-defense, almost, but this idea of vengeance is a scary one. Because vengeance can turn into revenge. It can be intensified by the emotions that we have that starts to take control of the actions that we do. And their actions could be just as evil as Haman's. The same brutality, only the roles are being switched. And I want to think through this carefully. I want to go slow. I want to be cautious because this is, I think, an important topic in our time. This is what we're talking about on Wednesdays in our series together, about how we interact with people who are believing things differently than we do. The law that God gave to Israel 
it contains a, a statute. It's called Lex Telonis. And we see it in Leviticus. We see it in Exodus. In Leviticus chapter 24, verse 19, it says, If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. This is not meant to say you can get revenge. This is to limit the extent of retribution. You know, North Korea imprisons a student and for a year has them. He's in a coma and given back to his parents in a coma where he shortly dies afterwards. What's the retribution? Well, we want to bomb North Korea and kill a bunch of people. Well, you see, retribution is to be limited because emotion will take over and start to push us further. And this is happening in every society, every place in the world. You take an eye, I'll take both your eyes. You take a hand, I'll take your arms. And we start to see this way of thinking that takes place. The statue was meant to set a limit on retaliation. It was to permit vindication, but prohibit vengeance. Right? We can retaliate, but we're not to extend it past that. And God takes punishment out of our hands. And so he says, vengeance is mine. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, 25. Paul has a commentary on this in Romans chapter 12. He says, never pay back evil for evil. Never take your own revenge. Right? There, there is a spirit behind what God is trying to do. And then even Jesus in Matthew 5 quotes Tevia from Fiddler on the Roof, right? Where Tevia is there and the, the Jews are being persecuted by the Russians at that time and they're, they're being forced out of their state. And they said, well, we need to defend ourselves. We need to retaliate. The scripture says, eye for an eye and tooth for the tooth. And Tevia says, great. Then we will have a blind and toothless world, right? And so Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says, chapter 5, verse 38 to 42, you have heard it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. There is a spirit of human value that God is trying to instill in us that needs to be instilled when we are angered and we are feeling threatened. There is a value that we are to maintain that doesn't go beyond what is needed so that I'm not here to do you in. Yeah, I can protect my family but I'm not here to cause harm to someone else. And this is something that I think is important that we understand because 
our mindset starts to go into a place where we see ourselves as right and others as wrong. So now I have the right to enforce what I see as right on the others, no matter what the cost. And so I watched this show on the History Channel called Nightfall. I just watched one episode and it's about the Crusades. And there's something that happens inside me when I see people with crosses on shields going around killing people in the name of Christ for the church, for the Pope. And you see them going into places and plundering and getting rid of all the Muslims who are living in cities in the name of Christ. Why? Because our justice cause Our cause is just. And I see the value of human lives being brought low because our ideals are placed high. And these are things that we wrestle with today in our time. These are the things that we have to deal with and not just on a a violent level, on a social level. We are living in a time where our country is being more and more divided. And yet Jesus has called us to be peacemakers. To do that, it is going to require something of us. And it's going to require the character of Christ to be seen in us. Our biggest problem isn't really our differences. Our biggest problem is that we build identity enforcing hostility towards others. In other words, it's not that you're different than me. It's that I really don't like the differences that are there and I want to prove them wrong and prove myself right. And so I set myself in a place that is postured to be hostile towards the differences that are there. And how can we find a way of holding our Christian identity that sends us towards people with love and hospitality rather than with fear and hostility. See, I am different. My beliefs are different. But my beliefs move me towards you with love, concern, not towards you with anger and wanting to take your freedoms or your life, to expand mine. And only those who refuse to be defined by their enemies can actually do what Jesus said, and that's bless them. But the minute we start being defined by our enemies and doing as they did, we can no longer bless them because we become just like them. And this is something that I hope you wrestle with. I hope you struggle. How does this work in my life with the situations I find myself, with the things I think about, with the news that I hear? I want you to take Jesus's words and I want you to struggle with them because they're meant for you to struggle with. Love your enemies. How many of you can do that? Now we want to, well, he didn't mean really our enemies. He meant just the people we don't like that much. No, he meant our enemies. Deal with it. How? That's where the struggle comes in. How do I walk in this place of respecting humanity 
when I've got humanity that does not respect anyone? How do I show up as a light to the world in a world that is so dark? How can I make a difference? You see, to make a difference, we have to be different. And when we act the same, you are not being different and your message will fall on deaf ears because it's the same message. It's doing the same thing, but in a different name. And there's no difference in the character. There's no love that's seen. There's no compassion. There's no care that is seen for the others. And our Jesus is not different than the God that Haman served or the God that whoever serves. And if we want to make a difference, this is where we have to be different. This is where we have to care more than they did. Otherwise, we will wind up being just like they are. If the power is switched into the hands of the prey, what does the prey do? Does the prey then become the predator? Jesus says, I will send you out as sheep among wolves. Be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. What happens when we have the power of the wolf? How then do we act? Do we act like sheep? Are we wise as serpents, as harmless as doves? Or do we become like serpents? And in the next chapter, we're going to see these things start to play out. It's interesting that it says that they began to fear the Jews. And so they began to actually call themselves Jews. Did they call themselves Jews because they were afraid or because they wanted to actually be a part of what they were and the God that they believed in? What a terrible thing is if fear is what brought them to a place of God because they thought they would be annihilated, killed, and destroyed. Now they're in the same position that the Jews were in, but the shoes on the other foot. Think about where we are, and if we have power, how will we use it? Will we use it to build up, or will we use it to conquer? Will we use it to restore and be peacemakers? Or will we use it in an authoritarian way to make our will known. This doesn't have to be in a governmental sense or social sense just in your workplace. If you're the boss, how do you lead? Are you concerned with the people? Or do you just use your power? There's a friend of mine who just recently left his church where he was going because the church fired just about everybody. And it's because the church has some a building project and other things going on. But to my friend, it was like, these people meant nothing to them. I think I told you guys a story a while back about a company that 
was so committed to the workers there that when things got slow, they sent out word that everyone in the company would have to take two weeks off without pay just so they wouldn't have to let anybody go. This was just a business. This wasn't a church. And the business said, we don't want to see anybody lose their job, so we're going to all take the cut so that you can stay in business. And that was from the top to the bottom. And then the people who were making more, who could afford it, actually gave their week so that they took three weeks off so that the person who had two weeks would only have to take one so that they could make it through. And we see this company actually showing concern and character. What a model that is. Why don't churches do that? Why would you fire all these people so that you can make a bigger building and not care about the people who are a part of that? And see, this isn't just in country against country. This has to do with how we care about others, how we live among others. And we are supposed to be the people that shine in these areas. So let's challenge ourselves so that we do. Let's pray. Father, whenever I come to these portions in Scripture where there is killing and the violence, and some of it seems just senseless I struggle I struggle to understand what is happening and what you are communicating and Lord I believe that our clearest understanding of what you say comes in the person of Jesus who is the fulfillment of all that you said who said that if You hear me speak, you hear my father speak, that he only does the things that you tell him to do. And in all of the scripture, we think that we know you, but it all speaks of him. And so help me to understand you, Christ, and how to interpret everything that I read through you. That there are things that are done that are written just because they are true and they happened, but they don't doesn't mean they're all good. Help me to struggle with this and to wrestle with this and to understand it. And help us to understand how we can live in this new way that actually does love our enemies and prays for those who persecute us. (coughs) Wants to do good to those who use us instead of finding ways to get revenge. God, that is so contrary to my emotion when I'm hurt, when I am used. That is so contrary to what I want to do. I need to pause and ask myself, how can I do this? And Lord, I need your help to live as the light of the world, to be a city on a hill, to be the salt of this earth. God, without you, I am weak. So change the way we think. Give us your mind. Renew our minds. 
and allow your love and truth to be seen through us. Pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. May you recognize that you walk as a lamb among wolves. And so may you be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. May you understand what it is to be great in God's kingdom and become the servant of all. Be the light to this world. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.